Welcome back to another episode of the Resellers Mindset Podcast. My name is Mike, also known as the Used Book Guy on YouTube, along with my friend and fellow full-time reseller, Johnny B. We help people start and grow their reselling businesses from the ground up. We also have a weekly Zoom call and private Discord for all YouTube members. Head on over to youtube.com backslash usedbookguy to join the channel and gain access to the full-length podcast, Zoom call, and private Discord today. Let's get into this week's episode. What is up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of Resellers Mindset Podcast. Mike alongside Johnny. And we figured you guys are tired of just hearing both of us. So we have a special guest on here. The number one used CD seller in Australia, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. How's it going down there on the other side of the world? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, no, it's good. It's We're busy. Um it's uh, unusually cold for summer here at the minute. Um, and yeah, that's the story. I'm curious. I mean, you've risen from, you know, you weren't even on eBay to being number one. The insight of like you starting reselling and what does reselling look like in Australia? Because over here, it's kind of like, it's almost a secondary thought people have. Like if I tell a family or friend member, like, hey, I resell. It's almost like, eh, it's like you almost get like a condescending snark look. I'm curious if it's different down there and just give me a little bit of insight of how you got into reselling. Yeah, no, look, it's the same here for us, um, especially if you say to people um, that you still predominantly use music CDs full time, they just look at you and they're confused. Um, but the way I got into it was um, when I was 15 in 1998, I went to a shop in a music shop in Sydney, um, which is a couple of hours from where I live. Bought some stock really cheap, took it back to my hometown, and then sold it on consignment through a music store there. Um, made a tidy profit. Realised there was a bit of a future in this, and uh, that was how I got started. Um, and then it sort of snowballed from that. Um, fast forward sort of twenty five years, and I've got two full time staff, one part time staff. About 11 warehouses, uh, 130,000 active listings on eBay, and more death bowl than you can poke a stick at. Um, so it's it's turned into a, a quite a large-scale operation. That is insane. So it's, you started with music and stayed with music the whole time. You never got like distracted and decided, hey, I want to try clothing or shoes or electronics. You just said, I'm the music guy beginning to end. Actually, it's funny. What we started with, or what I started with, was uh, some graffiti magazines. Um, and the main interest there was I was a collector of these magazines and I wanted to buy more, but they were quite expensive. And um, being 15, I didn't have much money. So I used to sort of buy in bulk, uh, keep a few myself, and then on sell the rest. And so we, we originally we were known as an art supply store and we sold all sorts of art supply stuff. And then we sort of changed and tried a bunch of different things. Um, the, one of the main reasons we got into CDs was because we were selling boxes of paint and the same amount of space a box of, say, 12 cans of paint would take up would equal about 80 CDs. And for each CD, the same amount of profit margin we are getting off each CD, we were getting off the, the 12 cans of paint. So... We got into CDs pretty early on because mainly because of storage issues um, from a logistics point of view, they're good to store. You can store a lot of them in a very small space um, and they're fairly lightweight and easy to deal with. Um, 
So we got into CDs, vinyl records, DVDs. Um, the main emphasis, and if I could only pick one thing to deal in, it would just be CDs. Um, but in buying CDs, we also would get offered a truckload of books. So we'd take the truckload of books, mainly to have a good relationship with our suppliers so we could open the door to more future wholesale CD lots. And then we ran into this problem with, well, what do we do with all these books? So at the time, I knew a book reseller, Mel, back from burnout, and I said to her, look, we've got a truckload of books. Are you interested in buying them? She came out and saw them and then started referring to me as her book guy, never actually bought any books from me. And then in the end, we're like, well, what are we going to do? We're going to have to start selling books. So we started selling books. She's the number three used bookseller in the country, and we're number four. So, And she's also my girlfriend now. So it's interesting the way it sort of snowballed, but we'll buy and sell anything. Um, our main emphasis is on media, um, CDs, DVDs, books, records, that sort of thing. But at the same time, if I get offered a truckload of ambulance stretches or pallet racking or forklifts, if there's money to be made... Uh, we'll most certainly buy and sell and deal in. That's a so we're good. That's the that's a true reseller right there. A uh, uh, tractor trailer full of stretchers. He's like, if the price is right, back it. I mean, you said you have eleven warehouses, so the space is no big deal. You just take it over there and uh, drop it off. Go ahead, Johnny, take it away. So, how long since you started at fifteen did you hire your first staff member? Like how how soon did you start that whole employee to warehouse or were you working out of your home for like the first year or two yeah so i was working out of my parents place uh for a fair while and i started living with my parents for a fair while because i had a lot of space there and it was free and uh, i like my mom's cooking um and i moved out and i moved about an hour away and then i was still operating out of my house and then i would have been i'd say probably about um That's a really good question. Probably about 33. So I would have been into it for about 18 years before I got my first staff member. Um, and what I what I originally did was I had, um, say, stay-at-home mums or stay-at-home grandmas, and what I'd do is I'd take stock to them and they'd take the photos. So they'd then supply me the photos and I'd upload them. So I started off by doing that. Then I started off, uh, I went one step further and gave them access to the eBay account and got them to upload the photos. Then I went one step further than that, got them to actually do the listings. And then what I was doing was I was paying them per listing. So all they were doing is putting them up as quickly as they could. The quality control was terrible, endless mistakes. And it was just, it was, the whole thing was horrible. And then what I did was I went through probably about five people like that that, um, you know, we're good for a little while and then they just got lazy and were no good. When I got my first full-time employee and she was fantastic and she was with me for about three years and during that time her son came to work for me and he's now my right-hand man um, and he's he's been so valuable to the organisation. I, I sent him on a all-expenses trip to Japan recently to get trained up in another area of the business um 
But thinking back, I mean, the ratio of getting good staff to bad staff would be 20 to 1. We would have gone through 20 bad staff to, to find one good one, just and it was a case of work ethic and being trustworthy and just being competent and smart at the job. You know, you've got to be able to think for yourself. It's not just data entry, this, this job. No, absolutely. I mean, I went through, I think I was fortunate to only go through six people before I found my one decent employee and only employee at this present time. So 11 warehouses, is is the thought process 11 is going to be it or we wait, we fill, how do you do the fill up before you decide to build another warehouse or do you try to sell off to keep the amount of warehouses you have the same or is it always expand and grow, expand and grow? Look, it's, it's always expanded, bro. So what we've got is we're at this one complex um, and we are their biggest tenant. There's probably about 30 different people that rent space at this complex um, and we rent um, at least a quarter of it. And literally it started off as a sort of a four-car garage and then it went to a essentially a 20-car garage um, and then it just snowballed from there. But... Every single bit of space we've got is absolutely chock-a-block full at the minute, and it's just um, we're just absolutely inundated with stock. Um, and the problem is we get we bought a whole bunch of brand new sealed um, DVDs from the supplier. It was it was equivalent to five eighteen-wheeler truckloads, and the problem with it is is a lot of it was good and a lot of it was sellable, but when you've got 300 copies of the same title, it's going to take a long time to sell them, um, especially with the way the DVD market's gone. So we've got a lot of stock that is listed, but we've got, you know, 30 copies of it in a pick box, and then we've got a pallet of it somewhere else in another warehouse. On top of that, we've got a bunch of death pile stuff that we, we haven't even looked at. We've got boxes from four years ago we haven't even opened yet. And it's just a case of, you know, sometimes you'll spend five minutes on each individual item and you, you need that time to go through and check everything and do it correctly. Um, and it's just a slow process. But what we do now is any new stock we have that comes in, we deal with that first and then we try and tackle as much of the death pile as we can. But it's, it's certainly a process. I already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway because... We have a fairly large Amazon audience. Can you tell us how Amazon works in Australia and if it's a big thing over there as it is in the U.S.? It's, I think you guys are really lucky in the U.S. because you've got multiple different ways of selling items. In Australia, the monopoly is with eBay. There are some secondhand items on Amazon here. Um, I haven't really looked into it, um, and I don't know too many people that are successful we're selling secondhand items on Amazon in Australia. I know the new market on there is pretty competitive, and I know to the point where people are, um, there's one eBay store I know that's got about 8,000 listings on eBay, and literally all they've done is they've gone to Amazon and they've taken all the, all the information, the photos and the description, and they've put it on eBay at, I think, 25 or 30% higher price, and they just drop shipping straight from Amazon. Um, so the, the prices on Amazon are competitive for the new stuff. For the second hand, I've heard stories where people have got 30,000 items listed and they sell maybe one a day. Wow. So it's not, I don't think it's 
it's certainly not where it should be. No, not at all. Not with the the name brand Amazon, huh? Mm -hmm. I'm uh, I'm curious. One hundred and thirty thousand ish listings on eBay. You said you know you like quality listings. Are you using like a listing software? Or are you just knocking these out? You're taking your own photos, everything like that. Because I can't even begin to imagine that many listings if you're taking photos yourself. Yeah, you have employees, but that's still a lot. I'm curious, like the process of getting to that point with listings and uh, what your listings look like, maybe compared to other people that just you know maybe use a listing software and a stock photo, or do you use stock photos? What we what we originally did was um, we wanted to set ourselves. Um, out from the crowd and we didn't want to use stock photos so what we did was for every item that came in we'd individually take photos of it so for a cd it'd be the front cover the label side of the disc and then the back cover um, and then get it listed up for sale our item descriptions are basically non-existent it's just a copied and pasted essentially terms and conditions this is what we'll do this is what we won't do um, so the actual descriptions don't really come into it. Our selling point really is the photos. Our photos generally are pretty, pretty good. We might have 30 different listings for the same release, um, but you might have a different sticker. The, the condition might be slightly different and we've got an individual listing for it. If we condensed all our listings, I think we'd have a lot less. Um, and we are condensing a little bit. On the proviso, everything matches 100%. And um, you end up with a listing where it's a secondhand item, but it's it's almost like a replenishable item um, because, you know, you've got, it's not a stock photo, it's an actual photo, but each item is secondhand, but it's got to match that photo perfectly. It's got to match that condition perfectly. Um, and then we'll have listings where, you know, we've got one in stock and we've sold 20 copies of it. Um, we, we like the idea of going to that model. Um, and it's sort of the same as a lot of the bigger players that, you know, they've sold 300, they've got one in stock, but they've got a stock image. They've only got the one photo. You can't really see or get a good feeling for what's going on. Um, we obviously, we differentiate between the slightest difference. So with a CD, you might have a British version of a CD that might be worth $20. And then you might have the Australian version, which is exactly the same. The only difference is it was made in Australia and it says it was made in Australia. There might be a five hundred dollar price difference, so obviously we want to differentiate between those two. Um, with our listings, I mean, I think our oldest listings are probably seven and eight years old, um, and it's stuff that, as we've evolved and we've had different staff list them and different price points and different quality metrics, I think our listing and our price points and everything is getting a lot better. And if we went back and looked at a lot of these old listings, a lot of them just need to be deleted. Um, and that's something we're working on. The goal for this year is to get our listings up to 250,000 to fill a lot of our, um, essentially our, our boxes we pick from on shelving, like designated shelves we've already got set up. So we want to fill that up and get rid of as much death pile as possible. Then we want to go back and pick our first box of CDs, our first box of books, our first box of DVDs, and go back through them and go, right, well, you know, do we need to just change the title? Do we need to lower the price? Do we need just to liquidate this altogether? What do we need to do with these listings? Because our sell-through rate is terrible. It's, it's less than 3%. And 
we'd love to have a much better sell-through rate, uh, but it's one of these things where with books, for example, we had no expertise about books, had no idea what we were doing, didn't know what would sell, didn't know what wouldn't sell. So instead of sort of looking at the market and researching it, we just started listing everything we had. And I think it's it's a hard way to learn what will sell and what won't, but at the same time, it gives you a good in-depth picture as to what's worth listing and what's not worth listing. So, yeah, so we've got a fair bit of work to do, go back and essentially do a stock take and work out what's what with all these old listings. I'm, uh, I'm curious here because I know a lot of people that kind of have jumped into CDs and DVDs. Uh, we get to a point where we buy a resurfacer to clean up scratch discs. Now, I can't even begin to fathom if I had to clean as many discs that you probably have to deal with. Is this something where do you have a resurfacer? Do you resurface disc or do you just eye test it, maybe test it into some kind of software and throw it out? Like what's your process for scratched, you know, CDs and DVDs? I'm personally really passionate about taking items that otherwise might get discarded and might go to landfill and getting them to a point where someone would be happy to own it and they want to own it. And then our job is to get that item to that person. So um, fairly early on in the piece, I went out and I bought um, resurfacing machines and I started with the JFJ, the American JFJ machine. Um, and that was um, fairly messy and time-consuming and somewhat expensive to use. And then what I did was um, I looked around and I hunted about for a long time and read reviews and looked at different machines. And we ended up going with the Elm um, Eco Pro 2 machine. Um, and so what we did then was, well, what we do is we look for holes um, in our business and we try and plug those. So an example is, okay, we know there's demand for a certain CD. We seek to get that and to on-sell it. With the cleaning machines, because the machines are expensive and the supplies are expensive, what we did was we went 10 steps further and we became a Elm distributor in Australia. Um, and that's why me and my girlfriend and my right-hand man went over to Japan. Um, so we're able to get the machines cheaper. We're able to get the supplies cheaper. Because we've got our finger on the pulse and we use the machines daily, um, we're a good agent to sell these machines to other people. And the interesting thing is um, we're able to see who our competition is. We're able to see what sort of volume our competitors are doing. But at the same time, we're able to give them our knowledge with using the machines and pass that on. So it's quite beneficial to us to be in this position where we're a distributor, we're able to get the best wholesale prices, we're able to have a really good, strong relationship with Elm in Japan, um, and it's it's been quite beneficial. We've only brought in a small amount of supplies and spare parts and machines so far, but we've negotiated to get um, 150 of the Eco Pro 2 machines, uh, and I think in America last year they either sold 130 or 170 of those machines brand new in America. So it's not a huge market for them, but the people that know and the people that need them, it's it's what they're after. Um, but I think if you're selling CDs, DVDs, any kind of disc media, games as well, I think you have to have these machines. Otherwise, you know, fingerprints are time consuming to get off. Light scratches can be removed. Discs can be brought up like brand new. Um, even deep scratches on on some on some stuff, the disc can be brought back to life. 
Um, and I think it's really beneficial to have those machines, even if you don't go with an ill machine, if you go with one of the competitors. Uh, but I think it's just up to the individual to have a look around and see what's available. But at the minute, we've got three Eco Pro 2s. We've got one Eco Master. So the Eco Master, you load up with 50 discs at a time, and that does different levels of sanding, and that really takes really deep scratches out. Whereas the Eco Pro 2 machines, they just work on heat friction and basically just buffs out light scratches. Um, but we want to expand the amount of machines we've got for ourselves um, because what we do is one-day handling. Um, and so if we've got 50 discs we need to clean, they've got deep scratches, that could take seven hours. So we need to get our orders packed and out the door as quickly as possible. Um, so that's why you need multiple machines, I feel, anyway. That's... Uh... I was not expecting that answer at all. That's like next level business thinking here, becoming a wholesaler for them. I mean, go ahead, Johnny, take it away. So do you do front load cleaning or do you clean as they sell or both? We do a little bit of both. It depends what it is. Um, so what we what we started doing is the, the business model we want to go to is this. We cast a really wide net. We buy as much as possible. We then go and cherry pick what we want. We might take, top 10%. And then what we want to do is we want to wholesale the rest. As long as it's the decent titles in decent condition, we don't want to alienate anyone. So we want to put those in bulk lots and sell them out. So then what we're doing is we're selling high-end, highly collectible, expensive items individually. Then we're selling lots. So it might be where you've got a, a music series where they've done volume one to volume 20. We might lot that together and sell volume one to 20. And we want to sell that again and again and again. And then what we want to do is sell replenishables. So as far as the cleaning machines and the supplies go, um, and it's a three pronged effect. So the same amount of work for us goes into selling one CD for a 50 cent profit margin or a $50 profit margin. We've paid our dues. We've, we've, dealt with enough of the cheap, cheaper, lower profit margin stuff. We know there are people crying out for that stuff. So we might as well wholesale that to them and also sell them a cleaning machine and the supplies and be essentially a one-stop shop yeah. for our competitors. At the same time, we're pulling out exactly what we want in the genres we know about, um, in the collections and sets we want. Um and just to me, it just makes more sense to go that route. Um, I don't think there's much of a future in in really low profit margins on on huge volume, unless you've got a huge amount of staff, a huge amount of space, a whole bunch of systems, and setups like these guys in America that use these neato sort machines, where they're able to process three thousand books an hour. You know, we're not set up like that. We're still doing a lot of stuff manually um, at this point. Um, so yeah so let's talk about shipping how long does it on a typical day does it take you guys there's there's four plus you makes five right no there's four in total there's four in total now is everybody all hands on deck during shipping or is it like one guy's job to do that for the majority of their shift no so it's all hands on deck and what we want to do the it's it's many hands make light work and what it is, is if we can get the pick and the pack done as quickly and efficiently as possible 
and get that stuff to the post office, at that point, a whole bunch of stress is gone and we can concentrate on what we need to concentrate on. So what we do is we've got um, one person that goes and picks all the DVDs from the DVD room, and that's the same person that lists the majority of them. So they know the DVDs quite well. So that speeds up and makes that process easier. So he starts at 7 o'clock in the morning. The next lot, um, the two next guys start at 7.30 in the morning, and generally one of them will pick CDs and the other one will start printing out labels. The process we use to print labels, it takes about 10 minutes a day to muck around with the, the software we use to print the labels. Um, so he does that whilst one guy's picking CDs. I generally, genuinely, genuinely, I also help picking CDs. Um, and then what I do is I jump on the machines. And while the CDs are still getting picked by two people and the DVDs are still getting picked. The reason for that is, you know, it takes a bit of time to run the, the disc through the machines and you've got to look at each one, double check everything and make sure everything's good to go. You've got to pick which method it's getting posted. So you've got me on the machines and designating how things are going to get dispatched. Then we've got one person packing. Then we've got one person entering tracking numbers and, and ticking things off. Um, and generally we have another person that's still picking a few orders. So we pick in three lots. We've got the, the DVDs get started on first. The CDs normally two people do. And then we normally have probably 20% of our orders of books. And we have one person that goes and picks all the books in the book room. Um, Time-wise, so, how, how long does this whole process take on a daily basis? So on a Monday morning, normally we'll have about 250, 300 orders going out. Um, we're normally done in about four or five hours. That's not bad at all. Yeah. Yeah. So the, look, it is fairly quick, but um, I know guys that um, they clean as they list everything. So we want to get to that point, but we want to take to an, another step. What we want to do is check everything meticulously, clean it, have it 100% ready to go, and then run it through a sealing machine and reseal it. And what we want to do is we want to sell it as secondhand, but sealed. So we're not mm -hmm. selling it as brand new. It is a secondhand item. The reason we want to seal it is so we know 100% it's been checked. We don't have to open up and double check it because that's time consuming. And it helps protect it, keeps dust off, us, dust off it and all that sort of thing. So we want to get to that point where we know what we're dealing with so well. We know 100% this will sell right. um, at this price point. So we can be confident we can run it through the machine, which is expensive, and then seal it and then put it in a box. Because when you pick and pack a brand new sealed item or a, a secondhand sealed item, um, it's so much quicker and easier. You know, you, you can get the pick and pack done a lot quicker because you don't have to double check everything. You don't have to change a case. You don't have to double check artwork. You don't have to come across, oh, this booklet is actually stuck together. We need to find a replacement. Or we've got to communicate with the buyer to say, this is damaged. What do you want to do? Do you want to refund? Do you want something else? What do you want to do? So, yeah. So I got a fun question. You may or may not know the answer to this multi-part question. Do you know what your most expensive CD, book, and DVD were and what the amounts were? The most expensive CD we ever sold was, 
around the $1,400 mark. And when that sold in the 90 days other side, there were two other copies of that that sold. And they went for about $1,500 and $1,600 for that individual CD. Now, it almost brought tears to my eyes because the other day I saw someone that sold not only that CD, but a whole bunch of other CDs by the same person from the same era for about $350. That would be a dream score. Um, the current market on that particular CD has dropped a bit. The cheapest I've seen it individually sell for is about $500. It is It does fluctuate a little bit. Um, and that was Richard Clapton's Prussian Blue. And that's a it's an Aussie rock singer from the 70s. Um, so that that's certainly a good one. Apart from that, there was a, a CD single we had once, which was from a... It was from a, a Sega Mega World in Sydney. So it's sort of like a smaller version of, I suppose, um, uh, Disneyland or something like that, like a theme park. And it was a single. And it was only four or five tracks, and we couldn't find it anywhere. So I said to my, my staff member, I said, look, put it up for $500. We don't know what it's worth. Uh, I think that ended up ended up selling for about $400. And I think since then we've sold about five copies and each time we've sold it, the price has gone up a little bit. And it's just highly collectible because it, it ticks boxes. It's rare um, and it's it's Sega um, and it's just, it's something that was sought after by, by collectors. Um, as far as DVDs go, there's a few that come to mind. Um, Recently, um, box sets that were for sale for about $500 in shop, retail shops here in Australia um, three years ago, we sold a couple of those for about $1,100. Um, there's been a couple of sets, full sets of DVDs we've sold for $2,500. Um, there's certain types of shows we're looking for, and it's more so um, TV series and sort of older Australian classic TV series that we're looking for. Sometimes it'll be an oddball thing, like some weird horror movie from America or something like that, that commands, all right, this is going for $300. But you don't come across those every day. What we are finding is there's a lot of TV series, like um, an example is there's a show called Grand Designs, which is about architecture, and individually... Um, some of those sell for a decent price, but a lot of them are selling for sort of $10 and $20. But if you put them in a set, um, you can suddenly sell it for $280 um, just because there's a few hard-to-find ones in amongst there. So what we're doing is we're jumping on eBay and looking around and actually buying quite a few of these individually and in sets, getting them back, doing quality control on them, putting them into a set, making, everything, making sure everything's 100% and then selling it at a premium price. Um, and I think there's actually a bit of a future with DVDs in particular in doing that. Instead of trying to sell them individually, is lotting them together in a logical set. Um, as far as the most expensive book, um, we had, there are some military books we, we had. Um, Jane, they're called Jane's, Jane's books. And um, they're big, thick, heavy um almost like a military catalogue of all the military toys you can get. And a whole bunch of those, we just automatically listed at about $1,000 each. And we were getting offers for $300 each for a few of them. And we sold three in one go to one guy, I think in Canada or in the States, uh, for 
about a thousand bucks. Um, so they've been good. Um, but I mean, the most expensive books I've heard of selling, I, before we were selling books, my dad had a neighbor across the road from his house and the, the husband had died and the wife was left with all these books that she didn't know what to do with. And he was some sort of professor at a university and they were pretty specialized books. So anyway, he had a garage full of these books because he likes books and didn't want to throw them out. He asked me if I wanted them and I said no. And uh, I taught him how to sell them on eBay and he sold three of them for $500 each. And he also had, that was after he had a university come look at the collection, take a whole bunch of them. So I hate to think what sort of value was there. Uh, but I'm glad I was able to teach my father how to use eBay and sell books for more than I can sell books for. Um, never happened. That event never happened. There yeah. you go. I'm but curious. I remember I mean, when I got into books, my, my father actually said to me, don't get into books. There's no money in it. Mm. And we turned around and said, you know, at, at one point I was sending him screenshots every time we sold a book over $100. Like, <laughs> we're, we're into this for $4. We just sold for 100 It sold within a week. You know, there's no money in books. And uh, he certainly he certainly had to eat his words. Um, but this, look, it's reassuring. There are a lot of people out there that are still after books and um, they're prepared to pay the money for those good books. And it's, it's fantastic. Um, the only other expensive thing I could think of was we had one record we sold for $1,100, and that was a um, David Bowie record. Um, was that before or after he died? That would have been – that is a good question. I don't remember. I don't know. I remember it was a Hunky Dory album, and it was a, it was a special one for some reason. Uh, yeah, I remember that went for 1100 which um, yeah, it was pretty pretty good for us at the time. All right, I got a few rapid fire silly questions here. First off, Grand Designs is a good show. I watch this from time to time. Uh, people like <laughs> make these super efficient, crazy houses that they put a lot of money into. So yeah, it's a good show. Definitely worth watching. Um, is Taylor Swift a big thing down there? Yeah. Okay, so Taylor Swift sells anywhere in the world. That's good to know. Pretty much, we got the U.S., Australia crossed off the list. Um, so, like, when it comes to music, is there, like, a media mail equivalent? Like, in the U.S., we kind of get a cheaper shipping rate for media mail, which is, you know, educational material, CDs, DVDs. Is there something down in Australia that it's cheaper than your normal postal rate? Not really. Um, so, the way our postage works, realistically, is just based on weight. Um, and so, for us to send a CD um, that's under... 125 grams pretty much anywhere in the country costs us about two dollars 40. super super cheap when you think about how vast the country is how spread out it is where you know it takes four days to drive from one side of the country to the other um it's it's a cheap rate um that's untracked if you want to send a track the price jumps up to about five dollars um if you want to send it in a sort of thicker padded mailer um it costs it sort of starts about eight or nine dollars and goes up from there but our postage here um realistically is, is fairly cheap within australia now um i guess this is a good question how do you know how much of your business is made up of international orders because for <laughs> ours it's very small in comparison but yours might be much larger before COVID, it was 23 percent 
yeah so right now i think it's a it's a slow down a little bit mainly because we put our prices up because when covid came about all of a sudden we had all these crazy emergency surcharges and all sorts of things and all sorts of problems and we charge a blanket amount so we'll charge 33 dollars. that's our starting price for anything anywhere in the world and sometimes it might only cost eight dollars to send it sometimes it might cost 40 dollars to send it but we like to keep it simple and if people ask for a discount or if they want to combine, yes, yeah, certainly we'll muck around and change things and lower the cost for them. Um, sometimes we'll raise the cost depending on where it's going and what's happening. Um, but international from Australia generally is quite expensive. Um, America's cheap for us to send from Australia to America. That's cheap. And Canada. Um, send to places like New Zealand and certain Asian countries, very cheap. Then we get into, say, Europe, very expensive. So for us to send a CD just a normal CD to, say, Germany, $23 just to post it there. So we'll charge 33 for that. You take eBay fees out of that, $33, um, taxes, um, you know, packing, handling, all that sort of stuff, all the costs. You're not really making a profit off the postage. It, it's essentially it's just paying for itself. Um, so do you have any – or go ahead, Mike. I'm curious here with it with like the the international shipping and everything. You say you kind of bake, you know, it's it's a kind of an average game for you. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Do you have like certain shipping supplies? Like, okay, for me, I swear by like these little nine by six padded mailers. And people yell at me all the time, like, oh, don't put a disc in a padded mailer because it might crack or whatever. But I still do it. Do you have like a go-to, like, okay, if somebody orders one CD, it goes in this specific packing every single time? Yeah. Yeah, we sure do. Um, we've only got minimal packing supplies. And what we do is we custom a lot of things. But generally, if it's one CD, what we'll do is we'll put in a small padded mailer, we'll fold it over, and then we'll put that in another padded mailer. So it's got that double protection. And look, to be honest, um, unless a lot of people are really kind of not telling us when cases arrive cracked, keeping in mind dual cases on CD is quite fragile. Um, it's pretty successful. Um, we got that idea from Music Magpie. That's how we, when we bought a few items from them, that's how they were sending them to us. Um, and it, it works for us. But what we do is we've got, um, the reason I've got one person that's packing items is a lot of our items just go straight into a padded mailer and it's quick and easy. When it comes to an international order, if it's something that's fragile or more expensive, He's custom making boxes. He's cutting bits of cardboard. He's wrapping stuff up with bu bubble wrap and certainly making it so it'll arrive hopefully in one piece. Um, you know, it doesn't always go to plan, but, you know, we, we've got pretty good success rates and our feedback comments a lot about how well items were packed. Um, I think we just bought a new machine yesterday that um, essentially you put cardboard through and it sort of cuts it up. It sort of half shreds it into this honeycomb, stretchy honeycomb sort of padding. Um, and the reason we got one of those was we've got a problem with, we've got a lot of leftover cardboard. We don't know what to do with it. We don't want to throw it in the bin. We do want to reuse it somehow. But also we spent a lot of money on bubble wrap, foam wrapping, packing peanuts, and we want to reduce those overheads. So we're reducing overheads, getting rid of some of our waste, and recycling all at the same time. And I think that's really beneficial. But I think it certainly pays to 
have a good packing station set up with all your supplies ready to go within arm's reach. So it, it doesn't matter what you have to pack, everything's there at your fingertips. And one of the good things about the way we pick orders, when we print out a, a packing a, a picking list, it's books first and any really large weird items, whether it's a gun holster or a DVD set, they all come from one room. So they get packed first. Then we've got CDs, then we've got DVDs. So the way we pack all that first stuff generally is the same. All the books, same sort of packing materials. Um, all the CDs, again, same sort of packing process of materials. And then again, with the same with the DVDs. So we're able to batch process it. So we're not jumping from one process to another and back and forth. And just by doing that, you actually save a lot of time and energy. So I'm going to ask a question to the 3% of our audience that it applies to. For those that are wanting to pursue the warehouse life, multiple employee life, what are some lessons uh, if they're still solo and they're about to make that jump? Do they go with the employee first? They go with the warehouse? A uh, huge sum of stock coming in. What would be your advice around the direction they'd have and any other tips and tricks you can involve making the transition into large reseller? I'd stop and I'd think about it long and hard first. And I'd think um, you, you need to plan ahead and you need to look at what can go wrong and what the possibilities are, both positive and negative. And I think you need to, one of the best things I ever did was um, actually drew blueprints of how I want my warehouse laid out. And that helped a lot. Uh, because I think one of the things you need to do is you need to maximise your space you're in. And I think you need to start off small and then gradually expand. And I think that's the best way of doing it. I don't think you want to bite off more than you can chew to start with. And I think it's things like, okay, well, if you get employees and you get a warehouse space and everything's hunky-dory, but then you don't have a, a good supply of new stock coming in, that's a big problem. The biggest problem we face now is getting good stock in. So we built a website based on buying stock from people, same as Declutter in America or Music Magpie in the UK. Um, the biggest problem I see is getting good stock. Um, we can always get bad stock, but getting good stock that is sought after, that's in good condition, that people want, that we can buy at a low price and sell at a high price, that's hard. And I think you need to think about all this sort of stuff. And then... You know, there's a whole bunch of things that came up. Having employees is almost a full-time job in itself because you've got to manage them, you know. They get sick. You've got to make sure they're comfortable, they're happy at work. You've got to look after their needs. You've got to worry about that. And you've got to worry about the business and you've got to worry about your own needs. But I think if you can start off small and build it up, I think that's the best way. So a lot of people say they started off with getting employees to help pack orders because they couldn't keep up with that. In my case, it was I got someone to help with photos because I was sick of doing photos and we needed a lot of them. And what I like to do is I like to train my guys up so they've got a good overall understanding of the business and they're able to jump in and do multiple things in different areas. And so if I'm not here, they can look after it. Um, but at the same time, it's if it's a job I can do and I can show them how to do it and they can do it and I don't need to do it, there's other stuff in the business, smarter stuff, where I need my experience, my insights, my expertise. I need to focus on that. So I'm not saying go after the fun stuff, 
I'm saying go after the stuff that you can't get your staff to replicate. So I make pricing decisions. I make strategic decisions. And I think that's what you've got to sit back and look at and go, okay, I want a warehouse because I don't want to have all this stock at my house anymore because I feel like I never escape work. Now, I've got a light switch in my brain now. When I'm at work, I'm at work. When I'm at home, I'm at home. Um, keeping in mind, you know, I go home to sleep and shower and do washing and then I'm back at work and that's it. I, I essentially don't have a life. I'm just work focused because I'm trying to build an empire. And I think it's, I think you've got to look at your motivation, what you're trying to achieve, what you want. And when you can ask, answer those questions, you know, your why, I think that's when you can go, right, do I need staff? Do I need a warehouse? What's the justification for that? Budget it and do a business plan. Now, no one likes doing business plans. It's it's super unsexy, but it gives you a good understanding of your financial position, where you're at, where you want to go, you know, and you can plan it out. The more meticulous you are with your planning, the better off you are. I mean, I know guys that jump in head first, grab a warehouse, grab staff, hope for the best, throw a bit of money at it, and then they wonder why it's turned to crap after 12 months. You know, their staff steal from them, you know, their vehicles break down, the warehouse leaks, whatever it may be. So I think you've got to think about all that. I think you've got to think long and hard. But before I got my first warehouse, I certainly, I couldn't fit anything else at my house. The whole thing was chock-a-block. And it was bringing me down because you walk out of your bedroom, you've got stock everywhere. And it's just a, it's a horrible, horrible position to be in. So I think... If you want to escape that, even starting off small and getting a small storage unit is beneficial and then increasing it from there. I um I got a few I don't know, controversial, but hot topics for eBay sellers that I see as a YouTuber out there all the time. And it's always something going on with eBay. Um, first thing, is promoted listings necessary in Australia and do you do it? Um, I know this is like some people that I don't promote, they're basically stealing my money. Well, uh, these are things we have to ask, especially somebody like you, where we can't find you on the internet, you hide away. So this is kind of your chance to voice your opinion on the hot topics of eBay. So the first one is promoted listings. Is it required? Do you do it? Yeah. Um, so I've resisted it for a very long time and our uh, visibility went down by 80%. So what we, what I think happened was they just kept turning down our visibility and forced us to promote a um, bit of a conspiracy theory, but I don't really trust eBay. And I think it's a smart business move for them to do things like that. I think that's what happened. Um, so as soon as we started promoting, all of a sudden our visibility is back and we started getting sales again. So I think we got forced into it. Um, we Currently we do promote. We promote all over the place. Essentially our selling fees average out at, I think it's 20%. Uh, but I think it goes as high as 23%, 25%. And what I sort of um, allow for is about our eBay selling fees are going to be about 25%. So it's hit us really hard. But without doing that, we wouldn't have sales to sustain us. So I think it's a necessary evil. Um, yeah, I, I know a few people that don't do it and that refuse to do it, and they still get sales. Um, you know, great. That's great for them. But they've only got... A few hundred listings they don't have as many as we do 
we sell at quite a high price um, and we're in a saturated market. So I think it is, I think it's a necessary evil, definitely. So the next one I have for you is, I always hear a lot that um, eBay is like the, the website doesn't work correctly or people feel like they're not getting the sales they should be getting on eBay. Um, I'm curious, do you like, do you throw like huge hissy fits basically if eBay is not working one way or another? Like, or is this something when you get to a certain level in the business that it doesn't even, you're not really worried about, like, are you checking is eBay down.net to see if eBay is actually working? Like, do you even care about any of that stuff? Or are you just business as usual day in, day out? You don't care what's going on on the platform. I've certainly got a love hate relationship with eBay. I do love it, but I also hate it with a passion. I really, really do. And the reason is I don't see them as being a innovative, it's not a company that innovates anymore. They they replicate and they copy. So an example is Amazon came into Australia. eBay felt threatened by that, so they started to compete with Amazon. There is no competing with Amazon. They're a logistics company. The, the difference is if you want the weird, obscure, hard-to-find, legitimately rare item, eBay is the place to go, okay? If you want the brand-new, mass-produced Chinese junk, Amazon. Is perfect for that. Why eBay felt the need to compete with Amazon, I don't know. Um, they should have stuck with what they were good at and stopped with the... They introduced a lot of Chinese sellers on eBay in Australia. And the problem that was um, people thought they were buying from within Australia, so they'd assume that they'd get it within three days. Little did they know it was getting drop shipped from China and took three weeks to arrive. So it's a bad customer experience and it put people off. Uh, and that was detrimental to eBay in Australia. Um, we know there's a bunch of glitches on eBay. We know there's an old clunky system. Um, we we keep an eye on... We, we know when there's a problem on eBay because our sales drop a lot. You know, We know, okay, obviously, Boxing Day, Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, they're going to be lower sales days. But apart from, you know days like that um if you uh you know all your sales days quite quite average and then all of a sudden you get a huge drop um you know it's not a conspiracy theory to think that there's something might be going on with visibility or with the website or with the server or whatever it may be so we're aware of that i don't really look into it too much because it takes up time and takes up energy we just know Sometimes it's going to be really good and just hum along. And other times something's going to happen and things are going to drop off. However, it's in eBay's best interest to keep everything humming along nicely and get those sales rolling through for us. So we're confident that if something does go wrong, they will fix it pretty quickly. Um, and the good thing about eBay is it's such a ginormous organisation. You've got all these different arms of this company all over the world and they're all operating essentially 24 seven. Um, and so it might be midnight here and there's a glitch, but you know, okay, their IT team that's in Israel are probably working on it right now. So they're pretty quick at rectifying those sort of issues. Um, we used to have issues with if someone opened up a case like an item not received case or item not as described case, all of a sudden our sales would drop off for four days. And that was not a coincidence. They don't seem to do that anymore. Um, we offer 60-day returns. We've got five open returns at the minute. It's very easy for a seller to open a return 
it's harder for them to close it. A lot of the time they don't know how, um, and that's eBay's fault. They make it very easy for someone to open a case, but hard to close. Um, and these are cases where someone wants, wants to return it, but then they never return it, and the case just stays there open for a month, and there's not much you can do about it. Um, so that doesn't hurt our sales um, as much as what it used to. So I think they've made some changes there. But to be to be perfectly frank, um, I look at holes in the market and I try and find a solution and I work towards it. And at the minute, um, we're, we've built two websites and we're looking at building a competitor to eBay at some point for the Australian market and different to eBay. We're interested in used items, hard to find, sort of like what eBay was 15 years ago. But that's... You're talking about a million-dollar project, huge amounts of staff, huge project that won't kick off for a while. But the point is um, I look at eBay and I see a lot of problems with it and problems that a lot of problems would be simple to overcome. So I certainly, like I said, I've got a love-hate relationship with them, um, but I think it could be improved. And I think the the problem is they're copying too much and not in, being innovative, innovating enough. So from when you started to where you are now, do you think, two-part question, how many hours did you put in back then versus how many you put in now? And do you think you will need more or less hours as time goes on? When I first started, I remember spending about three hours a day hand addressing each package. Um, and so obviously as we've improved what we've done, we've got software that helps us with certain things you know, label printers that speed up a lot of the processes. So we're able to do a lot more with a lot less time and a lot less effort with having better equipment and better systems in place. And I think I think that will continue. I think I'll have to do a similar amount of hours, but it will become a lot easier to do a lot more because we'll have better systems, more staff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when I first started... I mean, I've been doing full-time hours on eBay for more than 10 years. But at the same time, I had a full-time job up until about three years ago. So I was working 12-hour shifts, an hour drive there, an hour drive back, so 14 hours gone. And I was coming back to a warehouse, picking and packing orders by myself for three hours, going home, getting five hours sleep, and then doing it all over again. And it was not sustainable. Um, and it probably cost me years of my life um in the last three years i've increased my hours in the business but i've also i'm trying to work smarter not harder so at one point i was consistently doing 100 hours a week in work um and i probably still do similar to that but what i do is i'll break it up a little bit so say i'll go and do a sourcing trip but I'll also combine it with a a, 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 um, a road trip, you know, and make a, a mini holiday out of it. So I get to have a bit of fun and do something I, I enjoy doing at the same time I'm doing a bit of work. Um, and, I mean, look, that's what I enjoy doing. Um, so to me, that's where you're doing something you enjoy, therefore it's not really work. But obviously, you know, being in the office doing tax or, dealing with negative feedback or whatever it may be, the boring stuff, the stuff you don't enjoy doing, that's what I consider work. So 
in my mind, my work-life balance, it's not perfect, but I feel like it's okay because I'm doing stuff I enjoy doing, you know, and I wouldn't be doing it unless I was passionate about it, unless I enjoyed doing it. But going forward, I certainly, there's other stuff I want to do in my life than just selling stuff online. Um, I want to build, essentially, I want to build an empire, give a whole bunch of people good jobs and give people an outlook an outlet for getting rid of stuff they don't want and also a place where they can go to buy items they're looking for and give them good quality items at a fair price. You are a man of so, the people. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, he just wants to help everybody. So you kind of talked about a little bit here before I, uh, sorry to interrupt you there, Johnny, but like you're kind of at this point where you're saying, you know, you don't want to resell, you know, on eBay the rest of your life. You have an exit plan and like what's your thoughts? Because personally myself, I say it all the time. I can't lift heavy boxes of books when I'm 70 years old and I'll get all the comments saying I'm 70 years old and I'm lifting heavy boxes of books. But I feel like uh, this is if I put in the work now, I might be able to get out of the grind and hustle sooner. So like what is your future plan? Do you have like a, you know, yeah, I'm sure you definitely do because your business thinking is just next level just from listening to you here. So do you have like an exit plan when it comes to, you know, where you're at today and how long, how far out? And what do you think about resellers having a exit plan to get out of reselling in the form of it being a business, right? Because we enjoy hunting, right? Hunting's fun. Going thrifting's fun. We're always going to stop in a thrift store probably the rest of our lives as resellers. But as a business, uh, what's your take on an exit plan for yourself and reselling and in general? I struggled with it a lot because the way I started out for a long time, it was a hobby business for me. And I did it because I was trying to build up my own collection. And it's just sort of evolved as I've evolved. Um, at this point, it's a pretty risky move because pretty much all our eggs are in the one basket with eBay. Um there are a couple of backup plans. If all of a sudden we got kicked off eBay, what we could do um, and how we could do it. Um, as far as an overall exit strategy, not, exam not exactly. I'm looking at more of an expansion strategy as opposed to an exit strategy. And I'm constantly working on that. So it's things like um, holes in the market and filling those holes. So right now, I'm yet to see anyone that has got a, a business that is solely designed to support resellers. So for someone in my position, I need stock, I need CDs, I need replacement cases for CDs, I need bubble mailers for CDs, I need cleaning machines and supplies for CDs. If there was a one-stop shop for me to go to and buy all that stuff, and I could just have a, a weekly subscription where once a week a pallet of stock arrives to me, oh, that solves some problems. That makes it a lot quicker and a lot easier for me. That's one thing I'm interested in doing is, is building a one-stop shop for resellers. So it's a lot easier said than done because I'm a CD seller, DVD, book, record seller. You know, that's fine. You can, you can buy that stuff wholesale and we could sell that wholesale. But what about all these other resellers that sell in different niches? You know, how, how can you help them out? Um, so I'm looking at, all right, can we can we have a business where we sell secondhand CDs, we sell the cleaning machines, we sell all these other supplies direct to other resellers, and they can deal with that lower profit margin stuff uh, and the more volume market. 
So for a long time, we weren't selling anything that was untracked. So straight away, our postage costs were double. So we only wanted to sell stuff that was a lot more expensive. But at the same time, there's a whole bunch of meat left on the bone for all this lower-end stuff that there was a profit margin in, but it needed to be sent untracked. Um, so we looked at supplying that stuff to essentially competitors that were happy to send all this stuff untracked. And that works quite well for a while. Um, but people, everyone seems to want to buy the item for a dollar and then sell it for 30. And in media, that's not realistic. You know, yeah, you can do it, but you can't do it, you know, a thousand times a day. So I think instead of an exit strategy for us, I think it's more of an expansion strategy and diversification. And I think what we want is we're building a strong foundation and then we're building on top of that. And essentially, in my mind, I've got a pyramid built. And at this point, we're on layer one. And where I want to go to, the, the pinnacle, is a lifetime's work. Um, and how I want to get there, you know, it's just it's just a grind. And it's, it's a hard slog. And it's going to take a fair bit of time, money, and effort. Uh, but it's something we're working towards. And it sort of comes down to, okay, well, we sell on eBay. We've got a problem buying stock. We'll build a website designed to buy stock off people you, you go on there on your smartphone on an app or a barcode scanner a desktop computer scan a barcode we give you a valuation you put it in a box we pay for the postage you send it to us we check it for quality then list it for sale um so that that solves the problem um and then as i said with the cd dvd cleaning machines that's a whole separate business it's, it's all wrapped into one, but that is a different type of business, but it supports the main aim. So I think it's not, a, um, it's not an exit strategy, it's an expansion, expansion strategy. Uh, I've got a few rapid fire questions here, if Johnny has any before we wrap up here. Um, first thing I have is if media went away, do you have like another category you would choose to sell right for me it could probably be toys i always say like toys would be fun like toys are a fun thing to list and sell if i go and sell media then i probably do that like what would be your next thing to jump into if everything media went away from your life and you had to choose something else we do we do a lot of media because it's easy to store and it's a similar process with posting and taking photos because the items are flat um I don't know. I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's the same process. You know, it doesn't matter if you're selling a tractor or a guitar. You've got to clean it up. You've got to make it look good. You've got to do your research. You've got to take your photos. You've got to check the market. It's the same process. doesn't matter what the item is. So we're versatile. We can do that and jump into anything else at any point. But to specialise in something else, I really don't know. I don't like dealing with clothing, um, but that's a huge market. Don't but, do it, Tom. Don't do it. <laughs> so what is your biggest mistake that you learned the most from? Um, look, I'm a trial and error guy. Um, I, I constantly make mistakes. Um, I don't know. There's been quite a few. Um, there was one scenario where we, we got in trouble for selling some stuff we shouldn't have been selling through the business. Um, I think 
I think in business, what you need is you need a good accountant and a good lawyer. And you need these guys ready to go for good advice. So if you're not too sure about the legalities of something or you're not too sure about, say, the tax implications, you've got people you can go to straight away and just ask them the question. They're already familiar with you. They're already familiar with your business. And you you can just tap into that resource and ask them. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's there's a lot of mistakes. Um, I, I Yeah, to pinpoint one, I, I don't know where to start. I think it's... I'm with you. I make mistakes all the time, but I always learn from them. Oh, look, yeah, of course. And if you don't, you're crazy. But yeah, I think it's one of these businesses where you've got to learn to cover yourself. And look, the way I look at it is my job is to keep my guys employed and their job is to look after my best interests. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's little things like, okay, if this if we know this particular item is on the Vero list and we can't sell it, don't list it for sale. You know, there, there's all sorts of things that happen. But I think it's just the whole thing, selling on eBay, eBay is not good at educating people about how to use the platform, how to do certain things. They're terrible at that. And I think you've you've got to learn by trial and error. And you learn by you learn the hard way. Or we learn the hard way anyway. How many so, listings per day? Uh yesterday we did five hundred. Now it's interesting because our aim is about a thousand a day. Um and if we were ready to go with everything, that'd be fine. So yesterday we had three full-time people, one part-time person working on that. Um, we were able to get that many done because we knew straight off the bat a whole bunch of stock what, what it was going to be priced at. So that really sped the process up. But we're big on batch processing, and what I've got the guys working on today is doing quality control on a whole bunch of stuff. So checking the, the CD doesn't have any cracks, isn't too badly scratched, matches the artwork, the artwork's all complete, the booklets aren't water damaged. So it's 100% ready to go. I then come in, price stuff, and if I can leave them with a 1,000 priced items between the three of them, they should be able to get those those up and, and dealt with. Um, our goal this year is to get up to 250,000 listings, and that's that's pretty achievable. Um, yeah. Do you use a draft bank, or do you live dangerously and just let them rip when they you get them up? No, no draft bank. Um, I've got a bunch of stuff in draft bank, and that's just by accident. Um, it's uh, we want to get those listings up as quick as possible. And um, our our motto is, I mean, our motto has changed, but it used to be list it and forget it. You can't do that anymore. You got to have your finger on the pulse. You got to update things. You got to look at price points, and you got to you got to keep an eye on it. But um, what we do now is. You, you can't sell anything that's not listed for sales. So even if we've got a bad listing up with a bad title, as long as we've got a title, photos, and a price, at least we've got a chance of selling it. But what we're doing at the minute is our listings go up with no photos. So it's got a placeholder photo, which is just our business logo. And then basically the stock goes to our photographer and he takes those photos and uploads them. And basically we know if our photographer's not busy taking photos, we know we're not doing our job. So it's just a continual process of feeding the beast. But at the moment, we've got so much death pile, we're just trying to list essentially everything. Any new stock we've got coming in, 
we have gotten better and better and better at knowing what sells and what doesn't, what's worth what. So the new stuff coming in, we prioritise because generally it, it's better stock and it helps kick the store into gear. And then to clear out a lot of the older stock, we do a lot of things like um, buy 10, get 10 free, buy four, get two free, 10% 10, 10 off here, 15% off there, all these sort of incentives for customers to buy more. And so they're looking at our new stuff, but at the same time, they're finding a few of our old items. And we still sell, not on a daily basis, but on a weekly basis, we'd still sell listings that are seven years old. And maybe is a funny game, you'll get someone will die or someone will go on tour, a band will break up or someone will release a book, something might happen and all of a sudden your sales pick up. It's like um, we hadn't sold a Kate Bush CD for six months and then Stranger Things came out with uh, Kate Bush's Running Up the Hill song that uh, was 37 years old and went back to number one in the charts because of Stranger Things. And this whole new generation discovered Kate Bush and all of a sudden every single Kate Bush CD we had sold. And you, you don't know things like that are going to happen. You know, you know, obviously, Goldie Horn is getting on. At some point, she will die. Is it worthwhile stockpiling Goldie Horn DVDs? Probably not. But when that fateful day does happen, we will sell a lot of her stuff. So it's interesting. It's still, there's still an element of listed and forget it because you don't know what's going to sell and when and why. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here, Tom. We appreciate you hanging out with us. I do have one final fun question here. As somebody that sells CD, we have to know who is your favorite artist, band, singer, whatever you have. You have to listen to music if that's all you're around all day. So we got to know, like, what's your go-to CD or, you know, music you listen to? Remember, Jared listens to this. Uh-oh. I. It's, it's quite funny the way it works for me. I've got two mindsets. To me, a good CD is a CD that sells. All right? So I, I may like it or not like it, but in my mind, it's good if it sells. If it doesn't sell, it's no good. The, the sort of music I'm interested in, diverse range, classical to, you know, gangster rap and everything in between. Um, but I do like a lot of the old hip-hop stuff. And I, I was a nightclub bouncer for many years. I used to have really good taste in music, and then I worked at all these different sort of venues, and my taste in music just went all over the place. So I like a lot of cheesy top 40 and weird techno music and gangster rap and all sorts of stuff. You know, all over the place. But I do like to listen to a lot of music, definitely. All right, Tom. We appreciate you hanging out with us today. We look forward. Maybe we'll talk to you again probably in a year, see where you're at. And, uh, yeah, thanks for spending your evening with us and sharing all the insights in your business. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Reseller's Mindset Podcast. Today's full episode and all previous episodes are available to all YouTube members along with the weekly Zoom call and private Discord. Head on over to youtube.com backslash the used book guy and consider joining for as little as $2.99 a month.